Let me uh, open up with prayer before we in the Word. Heavenly Father, we do tonight run into your arms, unashamed because of mercy. I pray that your grace would meet us there, Father, as we come to your word and that you'd speak truth into our lives, into our hearts, into our souls, that the glory and the reality of Christ in the scriptures would become to our hearts the sweetest treasure in the universe. There would be nothing else that would compete with it, Father. Do this great work by your Spirit uh, tonight, Father, in the name of Jesus, and tomorrow for those who are gathered with us online. Amen. All right, so for the uh, past few weeks, we've been in the, uh, the middle of John 5 in a series that we are calling The Son Shows Us the Father, which is uh, this passage that explores the deep relationship between Christ and between God. And uh, during one of the Feasts of the Jews, if you remember from last uh, week, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, and this ignited a great deal of hostility toward him from the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. They began persecuting him. And Jesus' response to them for why he was healing people on the Sabbath was very simple. He said, my father is working until now, and I am working In other words, the God of the universe is working on the Sabbath to heal those who are broken in this world because of sin, those who are broken because of the destructive realities around the fall. And therefore, Jesus says, I, his son, am working with him. They heard this response, and their response to Jesus was hatred. They hated him because of this, because he was referring to God as his own father. And according to John 5.18, they believed that he was making himself equal to God. Last week, we saw that they were right on the money. They were correct. He was doing that. He was making himself equal to God. And we saw that in his profound response, the beginning of his response to them uh, in this sermon that covers most of John 5. Next few weeks, God willing, we'll be looking at the remainder of that. Uh, But this was summarized, his response to them, at least the initial part of the response, was summarized in verse 23 when he says that the reason God sent his son into the world was that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. That was his response to the Pharisees, to the leaders. Uh, And uh, his goal here was, he basically said that, um, that this world would honor Jesus Christ just like they honor the creator of the universe. That's what he's saying. I'm I'm the one true son of God, and my father desires for you to treat me like you treat him. And that's a claim to deity. That's what that is. No one, especially in the first century, would hear that and walk away with anything other than that man's trying to be God. He's saying that he's, he's God. And in verse 24, Jesus makes this huge statement saying that, Believing what he says is believing the very words of God himself. There's zero delta between the words of Christ and the words of God the Father. And 
He said, uh, to uh, almost close the passage because we're still in the middle of it. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, that's God, hears Jesus and believes God, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And so this is the invitation of Christ. This is the invitation of the gospel to hear the words of Jesus and to believe the one who sent him. And if that happens, Jesus says, you have passed from, from death to life. So before we go into the rest of what Jesus is going to say in John 5, I felt constrained that we understand what he means when he says passed from death to life. Um, that we understand why it's so significant and important for him to say that here. This is clearly not a statement about physical resurrection. He gets to that in this uh, passage, but that's not what this is. This is not physical resurrection, we know, because it is faith, the instrument by which a person is raised from death to life, and dead bodies can't have faith. (laughs) Um, So this is a spiritual reality, and it's a spiritual reality that is depicted throughout the New Testament a reality that isn't less real or less significant than a physical resurrection. In fact, I would say it is infinitely more real and infinitely more significant because all eternity hangs in the balance. In a physical resurrection, the person gets raised from the dead, may die in five years, 10 years, 20 years. It's temporary. But this reality is eternal. And I want to spend our time today exploring it. What does Jesus mean when he says passes from life or from death to life? There are many places in the scriptures I could go uh, that engage this. 1 Peter 1, Colossians 2, Ezekiel 37 with the dry bones, Titus 3. But the clearest and I think the deepest and richest place we can go to to engage this reality is Ephesians 2. And so if you have your Bibles with you, And I hope that you do. Please grab them and turn with me to Ephesians 2, verse 1. This is another week where, I mentioned this last time, but having the text in front of you today is very advantageous. In fact, through this entire series, it will be helpful because of the complexity of the realities being described and and communicated. It's true every week, to be perfectly honest, but... uh, but definitely true uh, today. So today, uh, I want to read through the passage just to open. Uh, We're going to read through nine verses, and I want the weight of this text, Ephesians 2, 1 through 8, to land on us. And then I want to carefully walk through the verses here. Paul, uh, the apostle, as you're turning there, I'll just give you some background, uh, is he's communicating to the Ephesian church. He's writing a letter to them, and he's telling them what happened to them when they first believed. What was the experience that you had when you first trusted in Christ? Um, they don't understand all that happened to them, and you may not today understand all that happened to you, and he wants to explain that to them. So if you've been with uh, us for a few years, you probably heard this text uh, talked about, but I want to go through it really, cl- really slowly to, today. All right, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through, we're going to read 1 through 9, actually. 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So like I said, if you've been here any number of, of years, you've heard me talk through this text before, but today I want to focus exclusively on this. And if you've never heard this before, I imagine after hearing even those just nine verses, you might feel a little overwhelmed. That's a lot there. And so we're going to move slow. Right at the beginning, I want to just say this, though. Um, I want to make a point that the Ephesian church, revisiting what I said before we read this text, the Ephesian church is filled with Christians, which means it's filled with people who have experienced what Paul just described. Whatever Paul is talking about, they've experienced it, and he, he recognizes that he wants to take the time and the energy to articulate the events that took place in them because, and the, the events that took place in us if we're believers, because he knows that just because something has happened inside of us or just because it's happened to us doesn't mean that we fully understand it. It doesn't mean that we recognize how incredibly profound it is. And so Paul wants us to know this. He wants us to, to know. He wants believers to know how you became a believer. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer and, and you just heard that and you're like, well, I don't I have no idea what you're talking about. This is all new to me. He wants you to know as well, uh, Christianity, to, to be a Christian isn't to be part of a religious club. It isn't to be part of a uh, self-help program. Um, we don't sign on to Christianity. When someone sees Jesus as worthy and beautiful of, of being received and believed in and loved, it is only because something massive has happened in that person. Something enormous and eternal has occurred in their hearts. They've passed from death to life, according to Paul and according to Jesus. You don't, you don't just sign on to Christianity like it's some sort of program. It's not a, a moralistic group of people just trying to make better versions of ourselves. According to the Apostle Paul, it is a divine act of God in the soul of a person who is spiritually dead which is precisely why he begins where he begins. He tells them in verse 1 that before you encountered Christ, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and you were following the course of this world. That's what they were. That's what all of us were at some point in our lives. We were dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, and he says, in which we walked in or, or lived in. They were part of our everyday lives. They weren't abnormal they weren't anomalies. They, they were just how we lived. 
with selfishness, pride, lust, envy, anger, deceit. And Paul says to, to walk in those kinds of things, for them to be a normal, regular, regular part of your life, is to be dead. The word dead here is not hyperbole. It's not a, an exaggeration because it actually points back to why we exist. Like why you and I exist. What, what, what's the reason we were created and made ultimately? And when we go back into the book of Genesis and look at the first humans in Genesis 1, we see the reason why we exist. God makes it really clear. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So right there, the very beginning of the scriptures it says God created us in his image. Male and female equally created in the image of God to, to image him, to display him, to show him in this world. Humans were created to show something of God in this world. That's what imaging us. Imaging is, is showing the reality of whatever is being imaged and we were made in God's image. And so that's our purpose. That's our function. It says he blesses them here in this moment. He reaches down and blesses them, and then he releases them to multiply and fill the earth. He wants the world filled with his image, his reality. That's what he's after here. And our function I think is really clear here at the heart of creation. It is to show God and we do that by knowing him, by understanding who he is and having our lives, our desires, our, our hearts, our actions come into alignment with who he is. Which is why in Genesis 2.16, God gives Adam a very sober warning. He says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. <clears throat> For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God told Adam, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it's going to kill you. You eat it, it's going to kill you. And God did not mean that you're going to physically die right off the bat, right on the spot. He meant that taking into your own hands the arbitration, the, the, the determination of what is good and evil means that you are refusing to image me. You're refusing to trust me. You're refusing to show me in this world. And instead, you're showing yourself. To eat of this tree is to tell God with your heart, you're not worthy to be imaged. It's to tell God with your soul, you're not worthy to be trusted with this. I'm going to do my own thing. And the moment that that happened, Adam and every single human being who's ever come from Adam namely the human race, died when Adam refused to trust God. And death violently penetrated this world. Not first physical death. That would come later. Physical death is, is just an echo of a spiritual reality that already happened in his heart the moment he reached and took. 
This is spiritual death, which is where Paul begins in Ephesians 2 when describing what happened to us at the moment of salvation. To be dead in sins and to be dead in trespasses. We need to have clarity around this. This isn't simply doing bad things. This isn't even simply being a bad person. To be dead in sins is something much deeper than that. We only do bad things. We only sin in this world because we have in some way, whether consciously or unconsciously, pushed the reality of God out of our minds, out of our hearts, who he is, his authority, his goodness, and his glory. And we have refused to image him. We've denied him his right by being creator. And we've also denied our very reason for existing. That's why we were made. In the scriptures, this is referred repeatedly as being dead. But Paul continues with the description in verse 2, Ephesians 2. So look at Ephesians 2, uh, verse 2. He says, we weren't just following the course of this world, everyone following in one, one course, which is true, but we were also following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at now at work in the sons of disobedience. So what in the world is he talking about there? Prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Well, this word prince in Greek can be leader or chief or ruler. It's someone who rules from a place of authority. In the, in the Greek, it's the word archon. And it appears throughout the the New Testament. We see it all over the place. But in John, in the gospel that we're actually going through, he uses it very specifically. John uses this word archon to describe Satan. He refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. Satan is the the adversary, the enemy, but he's also the ruler. And Paul says that, that Satan is this spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience. And if we were to continue in Genesis, we've got to cut out of Genesis because there's just too much here. But if we were to continue in Genesis, Genesis 3, we would see this is Satan's work from the very beginning. Satan's work firsthand, we would see him tempt mankind. It is the, this ruler, this Satan, who tells mankind not to trust God and not to trust God's definition of what is good and what is evil, but instead take matters into your own hands. You define what is good. You define what is evil. And so Adam and, hear, Adam and Eve hear Satan's pitch, and they obey him. They obey Satan. That's what happened at the fall. And what Paul is saying here is that although people who are dead, before they encounter Christ, although they, they believe that they are free from obeying things, They believe that they're operating and functioning in freedom. They're defying right and wrong on their own terms. That's actually a lie. They are, in doing that, actually more hostage, more captive, more trapped, more enslaved to the prince of the power of the air, which Paul says is at work in the sons of disobedience. So it's not an accident that human nature is inclined to sin to selfishness, to doing things for our own self. That's not a coincidence that the the gravitational pull of the human soul is to having our own way. That's not an accident. Paul is saying that those who are dead to God are actually captive to an enemy, and they are also captive to their own flesh. Listen to uh, verse 3, where he includes himself in this. 
uh, he says, among whom, among the sons of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And he says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what it means to be dead. Really dead. To be dead in sin is to be driven by and captive to passions and desires in our flesh. Not a desire to know God, not a desire to show Him, not a desire to embrace Him as our treasure, but rather selfish desires that lead to pride, arrogance, lust, envy, anger. And Paul summarizes all of that reality, that experience, by giving us a title, humanity a title. He says we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind, which is a heavy, heavy title. And he's referring to all of humanity, from Adam down through the running ages. And this word wrath, he is communicating, means that we are deserving God's judgment. The slavery to the passions of our flesh, the desires of the body and of the mind, put us against God. It put us, puts us at odds with God's justice, God's righteousness. And so it is a defiance, an act of defiance against the one who made us. And objectively, objectively, taking out our own desire not to be this, God would be unjust to simply let that go. He'd be a bad judge to say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. And therefore, his, his own holiness, his worth, his glory, his own beauty needs to objectively be avenged. And that avenging in the scriptures is referred to with this word wrath. It is a holy response to rebellion. The problem with, with sin isn't that we're just ar- violating an arbitrary rule. That's what it feels like to most people in this world. It's a rule that you got here and I, do, I don't obey it, and therefore I'm sinning. But it's not that. The problem with, with sin, at its essence, is that we are defying, think about this, the creator and the sustainer of all reality. Why would we even think that we would survive that? We're defying the one true judge. I mean, the standard of righteousness. And so it's just for God to respond by looking at people who've defied him and saying, you're children of wrath. That's not capricious. That's not arbitrary. Our wrath is capricious and arbitrary. We get angry because someone cuts us off on the road. That's not what God's doing here. This is the right response to the belittling of his glory. And if I'm honest with you, the only reason the word justice exists in our vocabulary as humans is because he has it. He created it. The standard of righteousness exists because of God. The human concept of justice is is really, I mean, it's good, but it is only a pale and shallow derivative of what is going on here in God's heart. Without God's own just and righteous standard of, of his His purposes and his will in this world, there would be no such thing as 
justice in our DNA. We'd have no consciousness of that paradigm. And so God, in this moment, in this verse, if we were to stop here with verse 3, he could judge us in this state of rebellion. And he would have done us, listen to me, no wrong to do that. To condemn us. I mean, what is the punishment for condemning an infinitely worthy God? An infinitely holy God? And the scriptures tell us it's infinite condemnation. But the glorious thing about Ephesians 2 is that it doesn't stop at verse 3. Verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, Paul says. Something happened other than justice. Something happened other than wrath. And Paul uses the word grace to describe it. Grace. He says God being rich in mercy, being lavish in mercy, being extravagant in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he reaches into our deadness and our defiance of him, and he makes us alive. He makes us alive, it says, together with Christ. He raises us from death to life. And it happens not only while we're in the middle of our, our, our trespasses, when we're dead, it happens with Christ. With Christ is how Paul uses, is what Paul uses to describe how this happened, which is a reference to the physical resurrection of Jesus. When Paul, when Paul says with Christ there, he's referring to the fact that when Jesus died on the cross and was buried for three days and then on the third day rose, that wasn't just an event isolated on Jesus of Nazareth. It had massive implications. In fact, just a few verses before chapter 2, Paul tells us in Ephesians uh, 1 that it had far greater implications than I would say most Christians even understand. Listen to this, starting in verse 19. I'll read it. You don't need to go there. I'll just read it to you. Listen to what Paul says about what happened when Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul's praying for the Ephesians and us, and he says that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul's saying that's a, that's a picture of Christ's resurrection. God exerted extraordinary power to raise his son it's not simply a man being resuscitated or revived. God raising his son from the dead, not only breaking the power of dead over, uh, death over his son, but he's breaking the power of death over every single person who would ever trust in Jesus, past or future. And he raises him up. 
and seats him at his right hand in the heavenly places to reign as king over literally everything, every single thing in creation. So Jesus' resurrection, when it happens, wasn't just an event in history. It was that. It absolutely is an event in history, but it has cosmic implications. Christ's defeat of death streams out from that point in history to every point in history where someone looks at Jesus in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, as a hope that they were, they were longing for and trust in Christ. And when that happens, they're made alive. The power of Christ's resurrection flows to them and they are made alive. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the grave. Think about that. If you're a believer right now in this room, the power that God exerted to raise Jesus from the grave is the same power that was flowing into your heart to cause you to first believe and to keep you believing every millisecond of your life until you go home to him. That's what's happening here. So we are only alive because Jesus rose from the dead. And we're not simply alive. We are far beyond just being alive. Look at this, verse 6, Paul says that God has raised us up back in uh, Ephesians 2. Verse 6, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. This is so much more than just being alive. So much more than being spiritually alive. What happened to you when you first received Jesus, when you first trusted him, wasn't a mere formality. This is not a a religious game. What happened was a massive paradigm shift in the heart of a person. Not only do we receive life, but we are raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. So there is a real way. I know we're all physically in this room, and you're in your room Sunday online. Um, But there is a real way in which you and I are with Christ right now. Because in God's heart, He has so placed us in His Son joined us to Jesus that wherever he is, we're with him. Wherever he is. And I'm going to be real with you. It may not feel like that on a Monday. It certainly doesn't feel like that for me on Mondays or Wednesdays or really any day of the week. (laughs) Uh, But the truth is, if your faith is in Christ, you are there with him right now. Colossians 3 uses this language. We are hidden with Christ in God. And then he tells us, seek the things that are above. You don't belong to this world. Walk above this world. Our lives are, are secure, perfectly secure in the arms of Jesus so that no matter what you experience in your life, no matter what you experience in your life, you, if you've been made alive with Christ, will be with him for all eternity. There's no ellipsis after that. It's just a period. All eternity with Jesus because of this. He uses this word in the coming ages, in the coming ages. And I take that to mean every single age to come without exception. 
There's no end to this. Think about it. Where God is going to take great joy, the God of the universe is going to take great joy in showing His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You and I will know the love of God forever. Forever. In ways that we can't even fathom, we will know it. We will be experiencing and enjoying His grace in in, in ever-increasing ways for all eternity, which is why I think he uses the word immeasurable. I mean, immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us. It is the tasting of, the experiencing of His boundless goodness toward us. We will never summit the glory of God's grace in eternity. We will never get to the end of it and say, that's it. Every moment of eternity, which is why we call it eternal life, of eternity will be experienced in us enjoying this grace in kindness. It'll take that long, eternity, to understand the depths of God's love. And he calls it here, I mean, this is the part that really is amazing to me because it connects directly with what we're seeing in John 5. He calls it the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, which is important because it shows us that what will grip us, what will fascinate us in eternity, what will thrill us is the grace of God undeserved, unmerited, unwarranted love from God, a love that is only found in His Son. The Son is showing us the Father in eternity. That's what's so glorious about this grace. Well, Paul continues in verse 8, before we look at that, and I want to take some more time to look at that. He explains to us in verse 8 why in in verse 9 as well, why this grace is so glorious. Listen to this. He tells us why we will be preoccupied with this grace forever because we didn't have anything to do with it. We had nothing to do with it. Verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So why say that, Paul? Like, why, why say that? We recognize that we're broken people. We recognize that we're sinners. Why go through the effort to communicate specifically to us that nothing you just said happened to us because of us? Like, why say that? It's not a result of works. It's a gift of God. It's not our own doing. And the reason he says this is because he wants us to know it's true. We contribute nothing to what happens in Ephesians 2 except for our own sin. That's the only thing that we bring to the table. Paul says it is by grace through faith, which means that God is the one who makes us alive. God is the one who who raises us up, who seats us at his right hand with Christ. God is the one who guarantees our eternity there forever. And therefore, at the bottom of all that, God is the one who ignites our hearts to believe. The very faith we have when we receive Christ isn't something we produce. 
It's not something we manufacture. We don't just will it into existence. We are compelled by the beauty of Jesus because of something God does. It is a gift of God. Our passing from death to life is a gift. When you heard the words of Christ or when you heard scripture, the gospel communicated to you and you believe the one who sent him, it isn't because of something that was in us. It's not something we can take credit for. It's not something we can boast about, Paul says here. God looked down in our sin, in our deadness, and he didn't wait for us to make ourselves alive. He didn't wait for us to muster up the faith because we never would have been able to. No, he reaches down into our deadness by his grace. He leans in and he looks into our soul and he says, live. And in that moment, we saw Jesus as more than a man, more than a teacher, more than a miracle worker, more than some kind of healer. We saw him as Christ Jesus son of the living God who died for my sins. And this really takes us back to the title of the series, the, the Son Shows Us the Father. In the book of John, John labors to make this case, and it's seen throughout the entire New Testament, to be perfectly honest, but Jesus in the book of John is showing us who God is. The Son is showing us the Father. This was true about Jesus' earthly ministry 2,000 years ago, and this is true about everything we read in this book, the Bible. But what is amazing, this goes back to what we were just looking at, what will be true for unending ages is that the Son will continue to show us the heart of the Father. Because all of God's grace and all of God's mercy and all of God's great love for His people, despite the pervasive deadness in us, is found only in Christ found in Jesus. So we will still see the Father through the Son, through all that He accomplished in His one and only Son. Even in the vast span of eternity out there beyond where our eyes can currently see, in unending ages, we will still find God's grace and kindness toward us in Jesus and in what He accomplished on that cross. In Christ, we see the collision of God's justice, God's wrath, God's judgment against our sin swallowed up by his mercy, by his kindness, by his love for us. And we see that in Christ, in his son. The cross is where Jesus decisively ends our deadness by dying in our place by taking our sins upon him and becoming a child of wrath for us. Receiving the justice of God so that he could satisfy what was held against us, what we right, rightfully deserved. And let me just tell you, that will never get old. That will never get old. We will never get over how awesome. For those who've seen it, even had a taste of it, you will never get over how awesome the cross of Jesus Christ is, how glorious it is that God didn't just leave us to our own destructive selves. That God didn't just say, you know what? I'm tired. Bye. And cancel everything. But no, he didn't do that. 
He enters into our deadness in human form and embraces it until it kills him. It pays for our redemption with his own blood. So without the death of Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins, there is no resurrection, and therefore there is no being made alive. And so this is what Jesus is saying in that one verse in John 5 when he tells the religious leaders, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment because I'm going to take that judgment in their place. But he has passed from death to life. And that life in that verse, that one word, is all that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2. It is a powerful act of divine grace in the dead soul of a sinner that will become for us in eternity the focus of our joy, the unending focus of our joy. We will delight in, reflect upon, consider, talk about, sing about for eternity this grace. That's how glorious it is. And our, our, I'm going to just be real with you. Like my, even coming to this sermon, I know this truth. It is difficult to get our hearts in a place where we understand it. It is difficult to get our hearts to feel the glory that is being expressed here. That isn't a problem with the glory. That is a problem with our own hearts. And so I just want you to listen to me as we close here. I want you to know no matter where you are, what your week was like, no matter if you're a believer or if you're an unbeliever, no matter what this situation is in your current life, I want you to know that there is no sin that is too great. And there is no deadness that is too final in a human heart such that God can't make you alive. There is none. He can speak a command into your soul in a moment and take your deadness and say it's gone and bring life into your soul. Now, some of you are believers. I hope all of you are, but I'm just going to assume that not everybody has put their faith in Christ. But if you have, you know. You've already encountered Jesus. You've already encountered the glory of Christ. You love him. You've passed from death to life. Everything that I've talked about is yours. Everything that I've talked about belongs to you. You are seated with Christ right now in the presence of God. You're The true you is kept safe and sound in the embrace of Christ, no matter what happens to your life in this world. But if that's not you, if you're not a believer and you feel like, listen, you describe this reality to me, I feel like I'm on the outside. I, I don't feel like that's happened to me. I just, I want to press on you. If there is any inclination in you there's any desire in your heart at all today about anything that I've said, just to even believe in him and to receive something of this, I would ask you this. Give yourself to that inclination. Give yourself fully to that desire. Do not wait any longer. Don't push away any longer. You're not gaining anything by resisting this. Surrender to this reality, this truth. We were created, you were created from the very beginning to know God, to know him, to know the one who made you. And then from that knowing to show him, to image him in this world. That's why we exist. That's why humanity exists. 
And the gospel of Jesus Christ has made this possible, despite us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is God's own work in history to show us why he is worthy of being imaged, of being shown, of being displayed. Because on the cross, the Son of God embraced our death so completely that you and I can live forever. And not only can we live forever, but our soul's treasure, the thing that we were made to enjoy, is going to be the focus of our gladness for all eternity. It will never get old. Never. So don't wait any longer if you're on the edge about this. Let's pray. Father, you tell us in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. And the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We believe you. We believe that this is real, true, lasting life that you hold out in your hand. And I would just pray, Father God, that whether we are coming to this reality in Ephesians 2 with tired hearts and souls that sometimes just find ourselves doubting, or whether we come to it with zero understanding of anything other than the fact that we want end, that you would do, by your Holy Spirit, do a work in our hearts, open the eyes of our hearts to see this glory as it really is. Remove the blindness, remove the difficulty that we have, our own desires to to determine good and evil and help us see the glory of Jesus Christ and receive him as the treasure that he is, Father God. Don't leave us to our deadness, but grant us life. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.